Hello and hi and howdy and hello. My name is Renata Price, Junior Officer of the USCSS Carver, and welcome to My Turn, the internet's premier, wandering, loosely-themed movie podcast hosted by the cast of Waypoint Radio. For my turn, I chose Ridley Scott's 1980 genre-defining horror thriller, Alien, the fourth in our first set of episodes beginning with Predator, chosen by captain of our ship, Rob Zachney. Hello, hello. Followed by Prey, chosen by our stalwart pilot into the cold dark of culture, Patrick Klepek. I think those are reversed, but you know what? It's it's fine. Let's just keep going. This ship, this ship is can do whatever it wants. Prey, <laughs> reporting for duty. And Prometheus, chosen by the USCSS Carver's chief engineer, Ricardo Contreras. Hello. Hello. Alien follows the story of the USCSS Nostromo, a commercial mining vessel which, while on its way back to Earth, is forced to respond to an unknown signal on a strange planet. Its crew of charming, working-class miners and engineers descend to the planet only to come into contact with a new form of parasitic alien life. When one of the crew is attacked by the creature and brought aboard the ship, the crew debate between saving the man's life and preserving the specimen for science. That former position is held by just about every crew member, and the latter is unique to Ash, a man who seems oddly distant from everyone else aboard the ship. Eventually, the crew decide to cut the parasite away, temporarily saving the man's life, which is snuffed out shortly after when the alien, the now famous xenomorph, bursts from his chest. The creature quickly grows into a deadly, silent hunter, which begins killing off the crew one by one before it's revealed by Ash that the crew had been sent to this, uh, to this planet to recover the specimen all along. Ellen Ripley, the Nostromo's warrant officer, is the sole survivor and sets the ship to self-destruct before leaving on an escape pod with the Nostromo's cat, Jonesy. Aboard that escape pod, she discovers the wounded alien, which she then vents out into the cold dark of space, before putting Jonesy and herself into cryosleep with a course set for Earth. With introductions and summaries out of the way, I want to know everyone's relationships with not only the Alien franchise, but this particular movie. Like, when was the first time everyone here really heard someone talk about Alien? I, I mean, wish I had a cool story. I think yeah. we touched on this a little bit when we were setting this movie up during... Prometheus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob, do you have something specific? Well, no, I mean, like this. So my parents did not like uh, horror movies and they did not like sci-fi. <laughs> so uh, I didn't see this growing up for a long time. Um, and like my friends just wanted to watch Aliens, which was a different thing. Like, see, that's, people, I can't, like, pin, I can't the pinpoint the origin. Like Alien just Aliens, just Alien just exists. Like it is when I try to reach back and figure out where does mm. it begin? It's just always there. Like, oh no, Alien was just always one of your favorite movies. My guess is it is closer to what you're saying, though, Rob, is that I think for a lot of folks of a certain age, Aliens is this, like, like seminal, you know, uh, like action film, which must have led me to go then and watch Alien. That's that's the only logic I can come up with other than perhaps an irresponsible ant allowing me to pick whatever I wanted at the video store, which did happen sometimes, including, oh, you love X-Files. You should just watch whatever alien stuff, resulting in me renting Fire in the Sky, one of the most traumatic alien abduction films of all time, with one of the most horrifying abduction sequences. If you've never seen the Fire in the Sky abduction sequence, find it on YouTube. It fucking sucks, but it's one of my favorite movies because it destroyed me. I never want to watch it. I just like owning a <laughs> copy of it. So I never saw this until, uh, like, I think it was like the first year we had moved out to Cambridge, and there's a independent independent like revival theater in cambridge the brattle uh which is sort of like locally famous oh shit like, they that's the, the the harmonics used to do all these rock band things there associated with packs the, the yeah. i i got very drunk on stage uh playing rock band uh at at the brattle they're also known for doing like genre 
uh, like like festival picking stuff, or at least they are yeah. now. I don't know what they were back back then. No, I mean the 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 thing I will say about the rattles. Much love to the rattle. I've been there in in a while, but like, uh, very small theater. Uh, like it does not. You do not need a very big screen or very many speakers <laughs> to like have a bigger like have a bigger home theater experience than the brattle can really deliver <laughs> but they did cool like uh repertory things and in when we moved out here god i think well i think it must have been like uh maybe 20 i can't remember now uh they were doing some sort of anniversary for like the films of 1979 and so there's a bunch of awesome movies like hitting up their their run uh like that that summer and alien was one of them and i'd never seen it and i was like well i'm gonna see it on the big screen uh and I must have, I don't remember like what we ate beforehand, but I got food poisoning. Uh, and so <laughs> like in the like 10 minutes in the movie, I got like cold sweats, like shaking. Like it is, it is a cool room. I was like shaking like a leaf because uh, it felt like it was like 30 degrees. Um, and I was just like, oh, but I just, I want to see alien and everything. So I'm just going to white knuckle this. And so the movie was a blur. Uh, like I basically like I remembered uh, like Dallas in the vents with the flamethrower. Uh, but the entire thing was just basically like a hallucination uh, until I was finally like, thank God we can get on the subway and we can go home and I can pray for death. <laughs> um, and Brad so got r- running during the podcast. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, so I like I saw it on like I saw print of it like for the first time and I was like, this is really cool. But I didn't feel like really, really saw it until uh, until years later, uh, you know, when I think the, the 4K uh, came out. And that was sort that was sort of the moment where I like fully had a chance to tune in on it and realize like, oh, shit, like this is not only is this movie like, you know, deserve all its reputation, but instantly like vaulted to one of my favorite movies. Mm hmm. Kato, how about you? You seem to have an intense reaction to the question. So, I was a scaredy cat as a kid. I did not like scary things at all. To the point where Michael Jackson's thriller, the mm-hmm. the, the one where the funny monsters, the transformation the eyes at the end, me out. <laughs> it completely yeah, I think destroyed this is, me. Kato, you can be a, you can be a scaredy cat, and I think that is an entirely defensible position. Yeah. I, I think I think you're cool. I, I no, but the, love scary even other, things. Even and other you're good. things, even other things. As a child, I was very not into being scared. Um, that was just like one of the easiest examples I could think of. Uh, but um, living in Florida, my family would regularly take advantage of the discounted tickets to Disney because. And, um, you know, we were a three, three hour drive away. So like every summer we would make it out for at least one weekend. Um, and one year we, when I was, uh, let's say probably eight, we went to, uh, MGM studios now called Disney Hollywood studios, um, where they have this ride that I'd never like been interested on called the great movie ride. Now the great movie ride isn't really a ride so much as like. I mean, you know, it's a ride, but what what it is is like you're basically driving through dioramas of like famous old movies, and it's like a, it's, a, it's, an, it's a small world, right? Yeah, exactly. It's that kind of thing where like the point oh, is, man. look, Did they do the chestburster scene for you in this thing. Worse, uh, at oh. a certain, you're like going through. We're like, oh, look, we're in the wizard, the Wizard of Oz. Look at the the colors, like, <laughs> um. 
like that sort of thing. Why is Dorian's face all fucked up? It's got an accident. The the great movie. What else was in there? Yeah, Wizard of Oz was in there. Um, I'm trying to remember. In there, huh? Is Casablanca in there? Yes, there was an airplane bit. I remember this, and like that must have been Casablanca. Um, but anyways, nothing like horror adjacent at all. (laughs) And then suddenly you enter a tunnel, and everything is dark. (laughs) <laughs> through flashes of light i started to see like what seemed like you know piping like we were suddenly in a sewer or something to like my young mind who had never seen the inside of the ship the stromo right like it's very obviously now what it was was like you're in like the ship in the bowels somewhere and like a very bad animatronic ripley is like holding a flamethrower off to one side and like there's some she like yells some line like watch out and then like directly above the thing that you're riding in uh, the fucking xenomorph pops out of the sea that's like, horrible it, it that's just horrendous cool. horrendous i was like eight i like lost i like ah, for the longest time like i could not think about or want to hear about alien like at all because i was fucking traumatized by the great movie ride um it, it- Cut off if it helps, I had this exact same experience but with a Lilo and Stitch ride at Yeah, Disney that's World the other one! When I was eight. Before it was Lilo and Stitch, it was knockoff alien. They originally, We've had this conversation. Yeah, we had we did, this, we had this conversation, conversation on the podcast. Because, <laughs> yes. because originally that ride was going to be alien, alien. like specifically alien-themed and yeah, there were rights issues, yada yada. And it's, so now there's like a knockoff alien thing that it was like very you, funny, you sit yeah. in a crowd around like a vat mm-hmm. um with a with a creature and like, uh, like there was like things like happening near your head smoke they blow air on your head blow, and shit yeah yes a hundred percent so i went don't I, blow air on my head no. i went to that before it, before it was lilo and stitch themed it was like generic alien themed like not xenomorph alien just like an extraterrestrial of some sort that was spooky but it was definitely built on the same type of like horror of like a thing stalking in the dark. So like those two, yeah, those two rides really fucked me up for the Alien franchise. And then like I don't know, like I went through the like arc of like okay, now I'm like not as scared of things. I start watching more uh, horror stuff. Um, but for some reason, I associate the Alien franchise more with its later things. And like the AVP stuff, like the Alien versus Predator unfortunate. stuff. Like, unfortunate. Right. It's unfortunate. like this thing is like, oh yeah, they they seem like kind of whatever, like like not very good horror movies. Um and it, eventually I I catch on to Aliens like actual like good reputation. I'm like, oh wait, the first one was good? Might as well check that out. So like, you know, back in uh, probably like 2012 or something. I watched it for the first time at home, and I was like, "Holy shit, this movie fucking rules!" Like, this is like an actually well made thing compared to like what my idea of the franchises of a whole was like. You know, it's like a a spooky like a, a creature feature that wasn't particularly good. The the alien was just like it was one of those things that got popular but wasn't. Well, that's what that's what happens yeah. to all like that's what happens to for you know horror franchises is right, like right. it gets impossible to make these things scary and then they just become pop culture icons right. that mm-hmm. uh, I mean aliens specifically contributes to this because of the way it turns it into an action film but and one thing I can't uh, I can't exclude from the potential origin story um, Robert Cotto, this will make more sense to you but like if your parents were lucky enough to occasionally sign up for HBO. Um, HBO constantly had films of the caliber of an alien. Um, and 
when my pain, I, I remember just occasionally flicking to HBO just to see what was on. And a lot of my exposure at a younger age to films that I was not, quote, ready for <laughs> were just airing on HBO. Wow. You know, um, and you know, my parents like were not uh, parents that weren't watching what I was doing. They generally, and it's a philosophy I've extended to my kids, like, I sort of trust you to tell me outside of like, hey, like a film with like, I know it's like a violent sexual assault or something in it. Like, I'm going to wait till you a little older to understand what the context of all this is. But generally, like my kids will tell me, my oldest especially, like, hey, this is too much for me. Like, I, I don't like these sorts of things. And they kind of let us figure it out. And I think that was extended to the HBOing uh, of things. And so there's a chance that it came in there. But but like I was also obsessed with X-Files. And so like anything alien related, there's a good chance that it came out of that era of just every Friday night on Fox watching um, Scully and Mulder. And mm-hmm. then just wait, aliens are spooky. I want to watch everything with aliens with in it. Mm-hmm. And I, I could definitely imagine that being related to that specific era of just wanting to investigate anything with a spooky creature in it. Nice. Nice. These are all really good stories. For me, it was, I think, I think this is the case. Uh, this, this is the timeline lining up. Alien Isolation released in 2014 uh, when I was 14. Uh, <laughs> and I remember listening to podcasts and like keeping like up with like, uh, you know, games writing and blah, 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 and people losing their shit over it at the time. Uh, and me being like, oh, this alien thing sounds all right. Well, I kind of want to play Alien Isolation, but to like put it into context, I want to like make sure I, I watch the original film first. So I like am approaching it with like the right mindset. Uh, and so at like, I think age 14, uh, I had my grandmother run Alien. Uh, and then I went up to the extremely small, I think it was 19 inch flat screen TV in my grandfather's bedroom <laughs> and was like, all right, time to watch Alien. Uh, and then after about, I'm going to say 30, 45 minutes, uh, I had a sleep attack and completely passed out for about an hour of the movie. I would say that my consciousness was uh, was on for Dallas going to ask mother uh, what the story was. That mm. is where my consciousness ends. <laughs> uh, and it clicks back on in the absolutely astounding last 20 minutes of this movie which happened i believe in real time and so i only I, the what happens between them arriving on the planet uh and ellen ripley in one of the most uh well-paced and intense uh thriller sequences ever put to film uh is a complete black box for me for most of my life um, until I think the first time I made a real pass at watching Alien was in probably 2019. Uh, and that memory is again vague because I had another sleep attack during the movie. And my first true, true watch through, uh, getting all of the appropriate context of Alien was uh for this show when i had a a friend in town uh and he and i sat down to to watch alien uh with the lights off over a beer uh recently and that was uh a i think an ideal uh, one of the ideal viewing circumstances for alien next to 
being 14 and very afraid uh, <laughs> after waking up from a vague nightmare, kind of into a new, different kind of nightmare. Um, but that final sequence is actually something I wanted to I wanted to touch on because I think that one of the things that really surprised me uh, about the differences between Prometheus um, and Alien, uh, especially given that they have the same director, is the wildly different pacing uh, that these two movies have. Because the first, like, I'm going to say hour and a half uh, of Alien, there are things happen in it, but it's a very, very slow movie. It is. It gives people time to do things. It gives people time to have conversations. Um, and it really lets like the it makes you sit with people doing actions, which I think is something that Prometheus kind of refuses to do. Uh, and I was wondering like how the film's like pacing lands for everyone here. You know, it, I was so reminded of when we talked about Predator as well, where it's like, wow, I forgot how much movie happens before like the threat is ever clearly I- identified. Um, more than half of Alien effectively is really before the alien is running around there raising havoc. Like the first third of the movie is uh, this expedition that goes wrong. And then them dealing with the fallout of the contamination and the medical crisis that follows. And uh, the, the profound mystery of like, why are we even on this mission? Like what, like what's, what's the story here? And I think again, what's what, what what I love so much about this is it's funny to go back and like alien isn't a thing. And so the movie makes sense as, uh, nobody knows this is an alien movie. The audience is not really expected to fully grok that this is like an alien movie in terms of like what that implies, what that means. And so I love it a lot because what I think the pacing accomplishes in the first like two thirds of the film is basically like a slow rolling escalation of a side a side trip on a mediocre work contract. Mm-hmm. turns into a workplace accident and a pretty significant like crisis of confidence among the crew and their relationships with each other and then it turns into we are all fighting for our lives here and so the 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 impact of alien mm-hmm. is really watching all these people that to varying degrees we can relate to and like they're they're very like they're very mundane and watching like these mundane everyday people go from well here we are another day in the space mines to we are being hunted by an alien killer uh you know in our home oh and by the way a colleague uh that we thought we knew uh, is a fucking robot uh (laughs) that was sent here to sacrifice us uh Mm -hmm. for the for the corporation like i i love that the movie works that way and i think maybe it's a trick that can only really work can only really work once, I was going to say, but, you know, uh, I guess Cameron takes his time with Aliens, too, yeah. uh, as, as well, when we come down to it. But, yeah, that that whole, like, the slow reveal and slow, like, escalation of what the stakes are and what the what the problem is that they're working uh, is is terrific. And I think it's something you can only really do at the outset of a franchise and particularly in this era. Mm-hmm. Well, the, the era is important, right? And, and to specifically the advancements of special visual effects technology in general part of what is amazing about this era of the blockbuster um is you know of jaws of alien you go look up you can see it in this movie if you go and watch it a second time where you're not like so like uh like wrapped up in the tension 
the the suit is is awful. Like it's it's barely <laughs> functioning. They are shooting around it yeah. constantly because mm-hmm. if you are ever to get if you look at any behind the scenes of Alien, that if you were ever to get a clear shot of it, th- the illusion falls away. And so you know what's brilliant about uh, uh, Jaws is part of the reason they don't show you the shark until real later. It's not the script. It's not because that was the plan. It's because the fucking shark didn't work. Mm-hmm. And uh, that movie benefits from this delayed, like part of like these movies as they're like incorporating these sorts of creatures as like the central spectacle is they butt up against like what they can actually put on screen. And this movie, like, yeah, sure. A lot of this is laid out, but you read enough about the production of Alien. Like a lot of what you arrive at is because like it all looked pretty silly. <laughs> Um, until you're able to kind of edit it and stitch it together the right way. And so it's sort of a function of the era and what it's made, how they're even able to pull off these creatures in general. But it's it's also an example of what you do with constraints. And if this movie was remade, if you were to do like, hey, not just we're doing a sequel where we have to put in a new context, but we're just going to do Alien again. We're going to just kind of start from scratch. I am there is just not a chance that they would be able to refrain from increasing and speeding up the pace at which you would see this thing, the amount that you would see this thing, because the technology affords the ability for you to do that. And, you know, hopefully it'd be like Prey, where like you'd approach it as a different film, which is like, look, when we do do that, let's do something different with it. Um, but part of what's so remarkable about this film, and 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 to your point, Rob, of, of how long it takes before it truly unravels is, yes, a function of the era, but like it, part of what... I, I found so fascinating about revisiting it was how much of it holds up. Like I've seen this movie yeah. a dozen times, right? I know every single beat. I can repeat the lines to you as we go through them. And the moment that Dallas turns in that tunnel oh. to hear that shriek. I mean, I I'm, I'm like jumping off my seat. Mm-hmm. It's the first time I've watched it in 4k. Like, so that is like Ooh. an added benefit. This movie looks tremendous. Um, it's not an, on an ultra HD disc, which you can't get. I watched it just on the, you know, the Apple 4k stuff, but it still looks it's like it's stupendous. Um, I watched it on a smaller screen, but it was at least a 4k screen with like headphones on. And it was just like the AV of it is astounding. I think I have two, two things. One to the pacing specifically and the way that Rob mentioned that how we've got, come to like learn about and like, empathize with the crew by the time that the alien is eventually revealed is one in the slow pacing absolutely as well but also i think i found something really interesting about the way they shot and sound mixed the scenes where everyone's together it Mm -hmm. sounds like there's a single microphone in a room full of people and this is it sounds like the way a home movie sounds when you like have a big group and they're all talking at the same time and like the direction is really good it feels like like some of the most naturalistic like people in a room dialogue that I feel like I've ever heard in a movie is in these movies and it's just like makes them feel so grounded aside from all the other work that they're doing through like showing them at work and showing the like silly like pranks that they play on each other like when they fucking have Ripley down but have the fucking steam going so that they have to yell over it when really they're the ones controlling the steam um like yeah there's so many good things that the that this movie does to really uh characterize the crew and then the other point was kind of 
jumping off of uh, what Patrick was saying about how little they show of the creature, I have also I also noticed that oftentimes what they want to show is is the mouth. It is the thing mm-hmm. that you would be encountering if you were the don't person. Want see, in, in, don't want to see its feet. If you were the one being hunted, that's that's it. Like it's right there. It's in your face. It is completely taking up your entire field of vision, and it's like that much more terrifying for not being able to see it, it in its fullness. Honestly, like it's it's not only like Agreed. they're shooting around it, but like I think it's actually also a very a great decision to like really embody that horror of like I am I'm done. Like this is you have no thing. sense of how big it is, yeah. right? Like that they're able to by shooting around it, mm-hmm. like keep the scale of it kind of hard, e- even in the moment where uh. Like it fully reveals itself and it's is uh you know is is essentially just like standing and frightening one yeah. of the crew members for a very long time. Who apparently er, they shot a re- the original version of uh her death was that she dies of she goes into a locker and dies of fright, but they didn't have enough <laughs> connective tissue to make that death work. So like when you see like the um uh, the tail of the creature come up, that's not her. That's a different actor, and they just sort of like, like a shoot around it. <laughs> To imply to imply her death, um, because right. uh, they couldn't actually connect all that together. But I think you're right, kind of like the, especially when you get to that final sequence when it's just Ripley and the creature. And I mean, all time, all time. One of my favorites. I look so forward good. to like I'm think it's earlier and earlier in the film until I realize it's the very end. But the all time of the alien moving its head and you realize it's a piece of the machinery um, in the uh, space shuttle is just it's like a top five shot in a film. For me, and that that reveal is satisfying every single time. <laughs> it's it's so good, and the way that Ripley responds to it is just it's it's tremendous. I think that one of the things I actually really like about this movie and ties into the pacing is the fact that it assumes that everyone on this ship is mostly competent and is going to show them making mostly the right decision. 99% of the time. And I think that actually lends itself to the way that the movie is paced because you are seeing people make the right choices and it doesn't matter. This thing is not something you can make the right choices around for the most part, especially not with an explicitly bad actor like Ash. <laughs> That's the thing. Yes, 100%. Even, 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 the, even the chick who's scared, it's like, yeah, you know what? I identify the most with you. This sucks. <laughs> Are we all gonna die in that shuttle? I'd rather I'd rather die of oxygen, <laughs> like like they're up. like that's cool with me. I'd be shitting my pants too. God, yeah, I think it's I think it's like really elegantly done, uh, and I think that like builds. I think that the pacing, which which gives time for these characters to grow and for you to get attached to them, and shows them as competent, really helps the film's. Um, reputation as a movie that thinks about labor uh, and thinks about it like intensely is because it shows these characters being competent and doesn't use the fact that they are like capital W workers uh, as the butt of a joke, uh, which I think a less considered movie probably would have ended up doing uh, in a way that I find uh, really impressive. And I think that the relationships are what like drive the film almost as the inverse of how uh, the thing is driven, right? The thing is driven because none of these people actually know each other well enough to be able to determine who is the thing and who is the threat. I think the thing that I really love about Alien is that all of these people 
have close working relationships with one another, and know each other well to trust one another when things get bad. And the fact that they have a bad actor in their midst is what leads to, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the like central downfall of the film and that the the bad actor is specifically tied to the corporation to Wayland yutani is i think what allows this movie to like cement itself as like a thing people think about thematically for a very long time like uh i was just watching the commentary before we recorded i think one of the things that's notable here is dan o'bannon on that commentary talks about how little interest he had in fleshing out the characters um just like no didn't want to know like who are they writing home to what what are they hoping to get back to didn't care uh and and o'bannon in the commentary comes across as a bit of a prick uh <laughs> and so like just aggressively disinterested in what they are not interested in and so they uh o'bannon kind of just didn't care that much about like the cast of characters in that way but the actors figured it out uh in that in the absence of like direction uh from the script what you had was a tremendous cast of character actors dialing in what they would be bringing to the performance and what they thought the relationship between the characters was with, with, with Scott there uh, mm-hmm. sort of helping them develop it, uh, you know, almost almost as they roll. And I think maybe that's one of the other things that that works in this movie's favor. Um, you know, like later Ripley Sigourney Weaver become like the face of the franchise. What's kind of cool about this movie is that like, it's not clear who is going to end up being the hero. Mm-hmm. Who who even is more important? Like we, we know, like I think it's more legible that, okay, Ripley is our, is a, is a point of view character. We keep coming back to, uh, but it is not necessarily like she doesn't she doesn't stand out in that way. Um, and so like the fact that it ends up sort of being her trying to figure the way out of this uh, sort of arises really organically. And I think makes it gives it this feeling of uh, there is. There's kind of two hierarchies uh, aboard the ship or two like parallel sets of relationships. There's the official ones that exist in terms of like who does what like character as job description. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there is who do they get along with best on the ship? And you get a taste of that where like, um, you know, the fact that Ripley is just trying to do her job when she recognizes that whatever has happened on this planet is a contamination and there's protocols for that. Like somebody's suit was breached by an organic life form. We, we cannot let you aboard the ship. And that is her job to be the person who's not, in that like extreme situation to be the be the person who's cold enough to say like sorry you might die in that airlock and i can't let you aboard the ship mm-hmm. and you can sort of believe that like in that moment ash out of a humanitarian impulse is the one who's like i can't let my friends just stay out there and dallas doesn't back ripley up dallas is like one of my people is hurt like let us aboard the ship we got to get to medical and like it establishes right away that in some ways there's like safety procedures and things are supposed to be real clear cut, but then there's the human element. And that's a, a, a thing that is constantly in play here. And I think it really comes to a head in that scene between Ripley and Dallas, where they have the private like conversation in the hallway where they're finally alone. And it is like, what's the actual score here? How did we get in this, in this fix? Because you're acting weird. Um, and it's sort of, now it is okay. It is not just like captain and second in command. Now it is like, we've worked together like i know this is not like you what's going on the answer is precarity the books are worse than the books are worse than you think 
Like we're, we're not doing well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's God. Good ass movie. Y'all heard it. Y'all heard of these movies. Excellent. And this also like proves what we were talking about with um, Scott as the director last time, which is that like, you know, the, the comment about uh, Bannon being weird about uh, the character writing is that like, Scott's command over like visual filmmaking and like working with actors to make a movie is is exceptional, right? He can take a pretty mediocre script or like a a good script and turn it into something truly excellent through like tremendous direction. Um yeah, I was fully thinking of when Rob was saying that about the script. I was like, "Oh, so like in the script those scenes where they're like in the kitchen and whatever are probably like we come in on the crew in the kitchen and then it jumps right into whatever dialogue you know eventually gets singled out but scott's decisions obviously to hold on no we're holding on them talking for a while like they're gonna like kind of banter for a bit like we're gonna get snippets do we know if any of that was improv did yes. you get far enough in the commentary so, okay, so, so that was my that, it yeah. feels so it feels naturalistic yes. in a way that would be impossible to capture if you were purely reading off a script or maybe working off right. prompts where like the conversation has to head to a certain place just let people figure it out because i think that's part of what helps the film uh, not only ground it, but feel like you're able to live with like, it's scarier because all these characters don't, you know, this is like the big thing that even, even Prometheus, if you like, you were to, to, to squeeze down the amount of characters, which is like a really easy critique of that film. It's still shot with like, they're, it's a script, right? Father, right. you know what I mean? Like that's a, that, that's an outlier, yes. right? But like, but it, but it is that is shot way more conventionally. Yes. And although 100%. you don't necessarily look at Alien as a film, and as like using a bunch of unconventional film techniques, like when you see that uh, pushed up against how a film like a Prometheus is shot, I don't know. It just it, it just it, that gave me the impression without any knowledge of the the history of those scenes that they must have just let these people yeah. talk to some some degree. The yeah, so regarding at like there are a couple things that again, like is it necessarily great to run a set this way? I don't know, but also there's some things that are amazing. Like uh one of the characters um just absolutely decks Ripley uh after uh like Kane is put in in medical and uh and Ripley like Sigourney Weaver does not know she's about to be punched. That's not in the script. Uh, it is like and and she's talking to Scott on the commentary. They're recording together and she's like, yeah, I had no idea. Like she just hauled off and punched me. And so she's like, I'm actually in shock uh, as as we played the rest of that scene. It really pissed me off. Uh, you know, do you want your actors to be getting like all methody and like just unloading on each other? I don't know. But uh, well, this is the era. This is the era of the shining. Right. Like in which is like essential, <laughs> like, essentially abuse occurred on a set to produce well, an incredible performance from Shelley Duvall. But uh, should Kubrick maybe have been <laughs> like put into jail for that? Yeah, yeah arguably. Well, they talk about the abyss on this, right? And like Ed Harris. Oh, well, Cam- Cameron is famously a wild for, man. Yes. For yes. like Ed Harris. Do whatever it takes to give you the movie. Great. Ed Harris, I think, is still furious about the abyss. <laughs> like 30 years later, will not like will not forgive James Cameron for effectively like fucking drowning him and his co-star uh in this movie. Incredible sequence, by the way. But it's like, are you nuts? Like he basically like the characters, like one of them is like intentionally drowned in the scene. Let me tell you, shooting it was not much better. 
this is this is the dark side of the you have to put the guys in the place theory of that a theory of filmmaking, which is that <laughs> sometimes you put the guys too much in the place. You got to pull the guys out of the place just a, just a little bit, or like let them know, hey, you got to tell someone before you deck them. Like, don't don't worry, the scene will still be fine if you let if you let um, Sigourney Weaver know that you're gonna punch her but, before you do it. I promise you. Here's the thing, maybe it won't. Like, here's the other side, because there's a moment where Scott talks about it's right after Dallas dies mm. and uh, Yafikado, uh like slams the the flamethrower on the table. It's like, this is all we found. No, no blood, no Dallas. And is getting in Ripley's face. And, and, and Scott is kind of like the thing we were having trouble getting is that, like, it sounds like. Weaver kept, uh, Weaver kept sort of defaulting to a really cerebral, like sort of detached version of Ripley, because that is where she like she is decisive in that way. She goes into mm-hmm. a problem solving mode. But for the scene, it had to be we need to push that. We need to see her like getting control over this crew, but also like get like having to struggle with like powerful emotions herself. And so the direction Nakata was like, you need to be annoying. You need to get her pissed off. And Weaver was like angry in the scene because of like the energy that Kato like the the yeah, Kato was bringing to bringing to the scene and like it was not she'd not expect to be like in that degree of like argument or having someone in that in their face that way uh in that scene and that's one of the scenes by the way uh you know Kato talked about the fascinating like mic placement as he retreats he's about to storm off he walks into the backdrop of the shot and we stay on Ripley's face uh in the foreground and uh, he he says something and he's almost impossible to make out. And she snaps a reply. But there's something. The weird thing is the fact that he's just a distant voice at the at the corner of the room. And it's just like a muttered question to her. And all we get is her response. Really? I do not know why that is so important. But Kato, I'm with you. Like the yeah. minute I was like, they didn't mic him up. And for some reason, that decision is the most important thing in the scene. <laughs> for some reason, that makes it. And maybe it is just because now you feel like I can hear what Ripley hears, sort of. But really, I can only hear what the camera hears. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, they, they didn't ADR it either, right? Like, they didn't yeah, even right. – or, or whatever they do, whatever, wherever they landed on the mixing, they they landed in the place where, like, it feels muffled and distant in a way that, like, positions you with uh, Sigourney Weaver. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you are one of the guys in the room. Yeah. And you're like, yeah. ooh. And I think that that's I think that's a, a a strength of this like style of filmmaking broadly. Um, I don't know. No, I, I think it, this is definitely part of it. It's like you know one of the things that horror wants you to do is to empathize with the characters enough to like feel the horror that they're feeling. And like this is just like a really clever way to further push that is to like try to situate you in the spaces. And like doing that by making things, you know, making that decision to not ADR that, not mix that back in louder. There's one other detail, by the way, in terms of ad living, because I'd seen this headline getting mocked because mm-hmm. it's such an absurd claim that the chest burster scene was ad libbed. And I'm like, no fucking wasn't. <laughs> like, Wait. do you know we actually killed John Hurt on this picture? <laughs> nobody knew that was going to happen. <laughs> but here is what they actually mean. Yeah. Uh, so the the thing is, what they were not told was the exploding blood pack 
that he they were not mm-hmm. told what was oh, about yeah, to happen this in this scene. And so they knew he was going to have an attack seizure of some sort and they were going to uh, have to like restrain him and hold him down. What they were not prepared for was the fact that there were going to be geysers of blood and shit coming out of his chest. And so they are all completely flabbergasted when that part of it happens. Oh, my God. Uh, and so that, like that's kind of like I would have bet like just I figured with that sort of effect shot, there's no way you're going to get. Uh, like a naive reaction from the cast. It's just, it's just not going to be possible. Uh, but no, it turns out like the effects crew and hurt um, were the only ones who really knew what was going to exactly what was going to happen in the scene. Scarrett had peeped in and had an idea of like, he saw the blood packs going on to his chest, but zero, like no idea what's really going to happen. And so when, um, when Lambert uh, played with Veronica Carp- uh, Cartwright, when she gets like, that fountain of blood just blasted into her face and just looks utterly like in shock and like just mentally checks out of the rest of the scene. That's, that's, that's kind of real. Like that's, that's there. I I mean, you see it the first time one of the blood pack blood packs goes off while they're holding him down uh, is that both of the actors who are trying to hold him just fucking freeze. They just immediately <laughs> shut down. And it's like everyone remembers, oh, right, we need to be holding him down during the scene when he starts thrashing again, because it is this like extremely panicked reaction that I think lands really, really well. And John Hurt gives a seizure like nobody's business. Like the way he is contorting <laughs> himself is alarming. Yeah. Uh, where it's like, oh god, like something's gonna snap here. Uh, we need to, we need to get him pinned down. Yeah, it's so it, it is interesting the way all that stuff is sort of uh, assembled on set and built on the fly between like effects, uh, you know, the director and and the performers, and it's not really uh, in the script. Um, well, and what's amazing is you there's you can't do shit like that anymore when so much of this is like pre visualized being shot so that it can go to an effects studio. Like there's just so much less room for improvisation once the effects are being handled off site. You know, you have, the thing is an interesting comparison because so many of the reaction shots in the thing are them reacting to Carpenter telling them, well, there'll be something there's spooky be some there messed later. up stuff in the corner. Right. Cause, mm-hmm. cause the thing shot all the, the creature effects separately and then they just splice them in cleverly to make it seem like it's all seamless. Um, and in, in alien, like part of the reason you can, get that naturalistic effect from like the blood, not only being a surprise, but also like it's on set, you know, it's a physical object. Um, You know, I, there are lots of things the visual effects do that are like helpful and innocuous, but there are moments like that that would just be extremely difficult to reproduce naturalistically. Um, I think alien is like a really good Testament to what you can get out of actors being present for something that's in front of them that they can react to. Um, And that's a huge part of why that scene still feels shocking now, even as you watch it for the, you know, 10th time uh, in my case. Yeah. Uh, And I think on that note, we should take a quick break and come back with a little bit more discussion and then a healthy dip into the question bucket. Hey everyone, welcome back. Uh, so Patrick was just talking about, um, we were just talking about performances broadly. 
the thing I want to drill down on is the movie set design and the way in which like the set design of Alien has become has like gone on to kind of define an entire aesthetic of like futurism or an idea of what the future could have looked like. Uh, and I'm really curious about how uh, folks feel the set design ties into the film's reputation. I mean, I think the like dingy, dirty, like lived in sci-fi look. I mean, I'm not sure. I I would have to actually like look, go back and look at other like sci-fi from this time. But in my mind, like what you have is Star Trek before this is the biggest. What is Star Wars? So seventy six. So this is the funny thing. But 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 in in the commentary, Scott is supposedly calling out like. I've been thinking of the Star Destroyers and stuff. He thinks of Star Wars as fundamentally looking pristine, which I don't mm-hmm. think is necessarily wrong. Like we can talk about how grimy Tatooine and the Millennium Falcon is, but you spend a lot of time looking at like polished floors and mm-hmm. and and like steel, right? Um, but the big reference, of course, is 2001: Space Odyssey, and mm-hmm. like what they're going for here is explicitly mm-hmm. like none of that pristine. This just rolled out of a shipyard, and it's like a science vessel. Right. I want industrial ruin uh mm. to be to be the look of this thing uh I, like i think the i think the way this all looks is is a huge uh part of it because I, you, know, you know on the one hand it creates such a sense of atmosphere of oppressive um like claustrophobia uh to it but i i think i i also can't undersell it is such a weird space in terms of and industrial spaces can be really weird like there's things that you'll you'll find that you're like i don't know what that's for you'd have to you'd have to like understand how the whole factory works to understand like why this like furnace looks that way or whatever but uh they they don't lean into that with things that are almost more temple like like some of the Mm -hmm. doors you see have like inlays of like gears and pipes but it's obviously not functional it is just the sense of like of of momentousness uh that exists within uh within the stroma what, what um uh you know kevin from grand designs uh sort of refers to as like uh events that happen as you explore the space and i think like the stromo has a lot of those yeah i think like when you look at the ship from the exterior perspective it looks like a ship built for hundreds of people uh it looks it looks absolutely massive uh in a way that is deeply unsettling uh and like actively threatening uh in a way that i find like really impressive uh and it feels like it is being run by a skeleton crew um you get the sense that the books are bad because there should be more people on this thing well the funny thing i think one thing they they do really well is you realize the first thing you see is barely the nostromo that you see the giant automated refinery that they're hauling around and you you learn so much about like what are the economics of the sci-fi universe it is these vast like mining and processing facilities just wandering space and then tiny groups of underpaid contractors hauling them mm-hmm. you know off on and offshore going uh, to basically. sleep for long periods of yeah. time <laughs> yeah like basically like not get- years but weeks months right i think i think when they're w- awoken for the signal they're 6 weeks from Earth, yeah, um, um, you know, but it's a frequently when we talk about time scales for like going to sleep, 
Um, and like waking up somewhere else is like, oh, well, the only way that's gonna be possible is like go to sleep for years and years. And like the scale, we don't know how far where they came from, but it is we're like, oh, like I'm gonna be on a job for six months. You know, I got to go out to planet Y or, you know, asteroid X. And that kind of gives you a sense of the scale of travel in the universe in a way that it doesn't spend a lot of time building that out. You just mm-hmm. sort of kind of can infer, you know, like the character of the universe and the character of like the the people within it. and like what that means and like how frustrated they would be if they had to do a pit stop and like what that means for, you know, their ability to get back to their lives whenever they arrive back on whatever earth looks like (laughs) at this point. It's not, it doesn't suggest necessarily a a real wonderful earth either. (laughs) I mean, it suggests Blade Runner, right? Like it suggests the next movie he's going to make like that sort of the fields of for sure. The world, the oil uh, refinery is just like stretching as far as that I can see sort of, bleakness is kind of seeded in the way that this oil refinery is just massive and well, imposing. And you have sort of the flip of in Blade Runner, the assumption is this work is so miserable and demanding and dangerous that you only send replicants out mm-hmm. there uh, mm-hmm. to to go do it. You create like, uh, you know, like hu- humanoid slaves, android slaves to go to go do this kind of work here. Uh, the androids are there as sort of a corporate compliance officer that's there <laughs> on the sly uh sort of a sort of a plant um the like as far as the uh design goes like i think another thing i like here is that you know you listen to the comment scott's an enormously practical filmmaker we talked about this last time where like he's he's, he's moving at such a rapid pace throughout his career he makes a lot of movies he mm-hmm. does not have time to sweat details he does not think are necessarily important he will invest time in details that are but like he wants to move and he wants to get his effect. And like one thing he comes to is the shot where uh, Harry Dean Stanton's character buys it. He walks into the room with the rain falling through uh, the light panels and the ceiling, and all the chains draped everywhere. People are like, what is this room? And he's like, I don't know. And I don't care. Like that's true of that awesome. whole film though. Right. Yeah. Like part, part of what I really, you know, related to the architecture conversation in, and the aesthetic is a lot of films like this would kind of like do their, there'd be times where you're following the characters around. So you would get a sense of the space. So like, mm-hmm. Hey, you're getting a, a, an idea of the layout before the shit hits the fan. And then you'll kind of understand like where the characters are going, why they're doing it at no point in alien. Do you have any sense of the space? It is, it is perfect, perfect, uh, purposely left confusing, vague. Like it's what makes like, and the fact that rip, that Ridley Scott did not care about the details and was more interested in aesthetic um, and that it looked cool as shit than explaining the why is what makes, whether by accident or on purpose, like the sequences with Ripley as she is running through these tunnels so much more effective because I don't know where the fuck she's going. <laughs> I, she's running, but the, it's not as though uh, so many films like this would like, have way less uh, aesthetic chaos going on. And like the camera pans to like down another hallway and we see the glowing red light that she needs to run to. And I get none of that here for the most part. It is just fog and strobe lights. And oh man, that sequence where she comes up through the little hatch and the strobe light is just going in her face. I feel bad for Sigourney Weaver because that was probably miserable to shoot for her eyeballs, but it looks incredible. And that chaos is what makes this film hold up on subsequent viewings is that despite the fact that I know every beat, I still don't really know what these characters are doing. I know why they're doing it, but I, 
it, it just I, you you get engulfed in the chaos in the same way that the the, the characters themselves are um, mm-hmm. because of the deliberate choices to just not mentally map out the space that you're in. Yeah, I think that one of the strengths of of this design that focuses on uh, whether or upset was event spaces uh, is that there's two ways of making a film like a space like this feel grounded in a science fiction setting, right? You either make it extremely thought out down to every detail. People are like, wow, this really feels like a, a spaceship that somebody designed. Whoa, cool, cool, cool. Or you make the space feel grounded in the experience of the characters in it. Right. And I think that that is, is, is the kind of grounding that this movie's really interested in, right? The, the raining ceiling and fucking dangling chains of that room. <laughs> yeah, it was like, like a, non- a sequence from Hellraiser. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I expect Pinhead to come out and like, you unlocked the box. Oh shit, there's an alien. I'm out of here. I'm going back to hell. Right. Exactly. Like that, that motherfucker is in an alien movie. Hey, <laughs> wait a minute. I know what that room is from. That's the room from fucking alien. That's a room that an alien kills you in. And like, that is a way of making your movie feel grounded that doesn't rely on the like hyper wikiification uh of your sets and like of your setting i think it's a a a really smart way to put together a movie like this um like especially as a thriller right if you want to really make the hard sci-fi everything is thought out thing right everything is thought out ship I don't know if you can do that in a thriller like this because the space has to feel incomprehensible and strange in order for the audience to like go with the characters on that journey through it. Uh, well, and also there's, you know, I, I love the fact that these sort of, they're not illogical or more, it's just not concerned with it. There, there's, there's a bit of that with even the logic of the creature, right? So when Dallas you know, goes to confront the alien and like the ventilation shafts. Uh, you know, they say specifically, we only found the flamethrower. We didn't find the body. Why? Why? Would like, like, are we, like at that point <laughs> in the movie, like, is we implying that it's eating it? Like dragging it away? Because later on, the alien is very, very happy to just uh, like mutilate the bodies and present them as the, like, look at the, like, look what I did to these beautiful bodies. Um, and uh, it works. I don't give a shit that like they don't establish the creature is not even, we have no sense that, is it feeding? Is it just acting out? Is it stalking because it gets, for the, for, I don't know, it gets turned on from hunting down the things that it, that it has found? We have no, we have no sense of that. And I, I love that part about it. Um, it's the kind of thing that it, you would, it would show up on Cinema Sins right now. Like, you'd be like, oh, like this doesn't, like, Rule number 45 that alien breaks, like logical <laughs> consistency number four. It's like, fuck you. Who gives a shit? Like in the moment, the confusion is what makes it scary. Um, not the fact that it doesn't necessarily add up to like a concrete creature and its ecosystem and its habits. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that like this is also affected by and, and, and this way of seeing the movie is affected by the later films, right? Films like Prometheus, films like um, Aliens that like have a different approach to how these spaces look and how you understand like space broadly. Uh, and I think it's, you know, I keep coming back to the distance between um, Alien and uh, movies like movies like Alien and Blade Runner uh, and Scott's later work with Prometheus. I, I keep coming back to how wide that distance is in terms of how they th- think about 
uh, space. But I think that like that's one of the the when Prometheus is is working in this idea of like epic storytelling or like storytelling that isn't interested in in minute details and is interested in in vibes i think those are the strongest parts of the of that movie right is when is when scott is like leaning into um his i'm just gonna put some shit on the screen and not really think about why it's here uh just because it looks sick as hell and is an externalization of what these people are going through what's what's so funny is um you know in the in the in the commentary like scott's very clear coming into this he was like i do not want this to be pretentious i just want to make a great b movie mm-hmm. uh in the commentary he's talking about how much he loves the exorcist and how he's like friedkin just like made a perfect movie Hell, yes. we can't touch it uh he clearly admires the shit out of john carpenter and like thinks that that guy's movies are so tight and so many of those beats are so perfectly executed. And that's what he was like. We're going to sit and we're going to watch these things. We're going to watch these movies uh, and we're going to like go for that. And going for it, he ends up making what, you know, we call it elevated horror or something, right? right. Like it ends up being like a, a, a masterpiece uh, and one of the great works of, of, of sci-fi cinema. But what he's aiming for is unpretentious <laughs> like it's just going to be like raw and we're gonna like, scare the scary. shit out of you yeah exactly it's, it's rare that a scare the shit out of you movie is also like the height of cinema which is not not even necessarily to be condescending to films that are just out to entertain you to have a good time like but it is part of what I, aliens unique hold in cinema is the fact that it is just an unbelievably shot well-constructed film that also is going to scare the shit out of you. Well, I also think this ties into what Rob was talking about earlier with Bannon's idea of like, I just want to make a movie about some people getting killed by an alien. The detail work of this film, the detail of how Wayland yutani as a corporation acts, right? What it is doing to people, what it's what it's odd, like in incomprehensible corporate goals are, how it sees people in this movie. There are quick flashes of like uh, crew bios. Uh, that have been pointed out by by fans um, at various points throughout the movie, which are like, again, really evocative sketches, and that's it. Um, and those evocative sketches are done by people who probably aren't Scott. Like, those mm-hmm. are done by set designers and, like, uh, secondary writers who are just, like, putting some shit in there and are like, yeah, I bet it'd be cool if we, like, suggested that Joan Lambert is actually uh, trans femme uh, and has been since birth uh, because of, like, a weird corporate practice, uh, which is a, a thing in this movie in her specific uh, crew bio um, <laughs> that's just in there. Uh, and because it is this like vibes based approach you can there's so many vibes based approaches happening at once it leads to the movie feeling as if it is this like extremely intentionally constructed um pointed commentary when it's just there's enough cooks in the kitchen all having ideas around the same basic structure that its thematics kind of emerge secondary to what the like intent of the filmmakers were yeah, go watch anything else that Dan O'Bannon wrote, right? He he writes Dead and Buried. He writes Dark Star. He writes writes and directs Return of the Living Dead. He contributes to Heavy Metal, Life Force, like an all-time weird-ass Toby Hooper film. Like, nothing he does before or after involved films I adore. Like, Return of the Living Dead is is such a good 
B movie. But if you want evidence of, I'd actually be curious to go read the, I've never read the script for Alien, but like, especially when, you know, uh, Ren, you were talking about like Scott's ability to punch up a script. Um, it is based on the track record of O'Bannon's entire, like mo- filmography, like as, as a writer, everything suggests that this had much firmer B movie qualities that were then, you know, just by happenstance and like, uh, was directed by one of the all time visual directors, um, that turned it from something that would have been, you know, and then you also have the HR Geiger element by creating like an all time iconic design. There's a lot of things that kind of happen here, but it seems like they sort of happened to the script, um, to transform it into something much bigger than just the words on the page. Well, also they mentioned uh, they kept trying to get Geiger to tune in on other parts of the design and beyond the initial concepting Geiger is like, don't bother me. I'm sculpting. This, I'm sculpting the alien. Now don't talk to me. I'm sculpting. <laughs> I'm sculpting. And so they're like, well, can you, you tune in to like what the, uh, to, to what the face hugger looks like? And he's like, no. <laughs> and so they just kind of have to like, you got Scott basically like assembling a bunch of these uh, things out of he has basically awful being delivered from slaughterhouses uh, to form like the bits of organic matter that they are like dealing with in this picture because uh, he's like it's got to look like recognizably organic but also really messed up and alien in terms of you mix and match different pieces of like uh you know lamb and beef and such uh you end up with something that like is recognizably uh that that fits that bill um and so like a ton of this is yeah geiger like sort of sets a direction but also can't be bothered to follow through with parts of it and so a ton of the effects are just kind of like scott and his effects folks standing around the standing around the set sort of being like all right well, well we will we'll we'll figure this out uh you know we'll 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 figure out a way to to carry off this effect but it is it all is all just kind of improvised there's a there's a bit where um scott mentions the the spinal the spinal tap thing happens the planet they go to uh where they where they find the 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 eggs and such mm-hmm. the set came in and all the rocky outcroppings they're supposed to be moving through are foot high like it is it is literally like the spinal tap uh stonehenge <laughs> thing stonehenge. where like the monumental like uh scale of this thing they show up at the set and it's a scaled down model that like if the actors trip they'll like smash the planet to pieces i guess and so like scott's like well we're gonna have to shoot really delicately around this uh so he like has some like inserted uh matte painting shots done uh like with the model in the foreground to create a sense of scale but that wasn't like necessarily the plan it is just whoops this didn't this didn't come together how do we make it work and it all yeah it all just fires because it's a really talented team and they're like inventing really clever solutions to this and i think it's so funny that scott going for like aiming low with this team around him ends up like hitting high uh, ends mm-hmm. up like creating this masterpiece and like later in his career there's so many movies you can say he clearly had a blank check uh he clearly was like and i'm really gonna say something with this movie and you end up closer to b movie territory with these things uh than things like alien or blade runner yeah well, prometheus is a great example of that like like it, it is it is far closer to an actual b movie with an extraordinary budget than than anything you'll see from from this era of scott Right. And I think that's, that's one of the things I love about this movie is like people talk about Alien as a film 
they, they focus on the labor angle a lot. And I, and I really, and I knew that, right? I know that people talk about alien and labor and, and constantly. And so I went in, when I went into Prometheus, having not seen the entirety of alien and having not been super familiar with alien, right? I was like, okay, cool. This movie is going to think about labor in this particular way because that is how the alien franchise uh, approaches or thinks about labor, right? And then it doesn't. It approaches it from this weird, like individual, like, um, um, individual embodiment perspective where, like, Wayland is the physical embodiment of the Wayland Utani Corporation. The corporation is, is all of these, like, grand epic things that are, that feel completely divorced from like the mundane reality of of doing work and seeing alien and understanding that it is not a product of intentional direction but as a product of dozens and dozens of people working on this film in such a way where it just emerges means that the the core thematics i think land uh, a lot stronger and are more like evenly dispersed because not everyone was thinking about them. Just enough people were, or just enough things were working on concert to create this reputation that kind of goes forward into the future. One thing that um, kind of floored me, I'm curious about this, um, in terms of things just sort of coming up, uh, not in the script, Ash as an android. O'Bannon gets real prickish in the uh, in the commentary about this, where he talks about it was a trope that he hated uh, in in movies of this type where they're like, ah, there's a there's a Russian spy among us. Someone's been uh, someone's been sabotaging the mission from the start. And he actually goes so far as to say, uh, like, it is a lesser story t- storytelling device conceived of by lesser minds. There's a reason that O'Bannon was not asked to like continue on in the franchise. He has shit talked this franchise for decades um like, oh, they'd only kept me around for the sequels i but i would have figured it out and the, and the thing is the the thing I, he, so he thinks like ash shouldn't even be there i don't know why this he's like kind of works out but like fortunately it doesn't derail the whole picture and for me i'm like it makes the picture like other because i think without ash this is a straight up creature feature monster movie very mm-hmm. good one but i think emotionally i think the most de- like i think one of the most devastating things the thing that like kind of breaks ripley and also forces her to like really steal herself for like the final battles is when she finally goes and and this is the only interface they have with corporate goes and talks to mother God, and mother. goes walks into the little computer womb and asks why and now that dallas is dead it will just straight up tell her what what the story is, which is, yeah, the you know the mission was get the organism, all of their uh, considerations, uh, you know, secondary um, crew expendable. And when we cut back to her face, and Ian Holm is just like he's sort of like a little cat walked into the room, stolen in behind her, and is like resting his head almost on her shoulder and reading the message with her, and reveals that he's been in on this from the start and just the escalating like spiral of horror that all this isn't just happening that that the 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 colleague you thought is a colleague is not it's not even it's not even a human uh and also this is all a science experiment that he's been running 
on you effectively. And this was, this isn't just something that's happening. Somebody chose to make this happen <laughs> to all of you. And like, I don't think the movie works nearly as well without just the first, the shatter, the shattering realization of like, that this is the score with this, like what's, what's been going on. But two, just the horrible, like psychic break of, and now we're going to find out what Ash is when Yavikado walks in and smashes his fucking head off. Um, yeah, but also, <laughs> in, in, and I always forget this little detail uh, in which, like, Ash, I, you know, it is, it is shown in that it's later in the sequence uh, when he attempts to murder Ripley uh, that he has, you know, at least some measure of extraordinary strength. His he could have just taken his hands and choked her, but instead takes a magazine and twists it tight and then just shoves it into her throat is, I mean, it's one of the most unsettling ways. It's a a porno mag, right? It's a porno mag. Yeah, specifically. It feels almost Uh, like he got the idea from the magazine. (laughs) So, yeah, it's, but it's just, it's just, it's, it's so the most, like it is one of those, I've seen a million deaths in a million movies and this attempted death, which doesn't even result in Ripley dying, is one that like I can feel it in my mouth. Like mm. when 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 that magazine gets in there, I'm like physically uncomfortable because it's just so easy to imagine what it'd be like mm-hmm. having paper shoved into your mouth. Um, and it's just it's just it just don't expect it as a way that you're going to be attacked uh, by someone, and 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 that remains true to this day. The it is very awkward listening to commentary because again, it's Scott and, and Weaver, like they they're in the booth talking. The, they're, they're, another part of the cast is together in a separate recording. They sort of interweave the two recordings. It's kind of an odd commentary. It all works, but yeah, uh, Scott sure reveals that like he and Home were kind of thinking about like, well, of course, like the robots not like the robots kind of like semi human though, right? They're like, yeah, like, obviously he gets like perverse, like, uh, like has warped reflections of the same urges and drives that that people have. Mm-hmm. And so the entire thing is like conceived of explicitly as Ash, like giving in to like a sublimated desire to assault Ripley and just talking through this. And we and we first like, oh, wow. Yeah. Th- uh Boy, you know, I, I thank you for uh, bringing out the the Freudian subtext of all this. I don't think we ever would have gotten that. Um, and and thank you for for having this happen. Uh, but it's but it is. Um, but it like it it does contribute to. You're right. Like it's such an unsettling thing that that Ash does, which is when when the the turn happens. You know what's the difference? Like. You go to Alien Isolation, right? The um, the Seeks and Androids, the the Working Joes. They are just robots. They will just come up mm-hmm. and choke you or or punch you out, um, and use their like super strength to kill you. They don't. What's so terrifying is they don't have any sort of sense of like human animus, uh, toward you. Ash does. Like once once the 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 turn happens, there is there is a real sense of like. Uh, and I guess, you know, this is the 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 root of Fassbender's character in, uh, you know, as, as David. There's a real hatred for the humans on this ship. I think it's I think it's it, 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 there is a sense of hatred, but also this um, 
it Ash shares this with the alien in terms of the thing that this person wants even if you can if you can read it in front of you even if you read in front of you the goal is to bring back the specimen right is in the internal machinations behind that are entirely unknowable right both uh the alien uh and ash do this like in- incredibly uncomfortable sexual mode of violence right both of them are these embodiments of an unknowable other ash being the vo- embodiment of Leyland yutani and you know the alien is this like literal alien presence right and i think the film does a good job of of drawing those lines quietly enough where it once you once you see it the film is screaming at you all of the time and being like it's a film that believes subtlety is dead uh but <laughs> does so in a way that i think it's just subtle enough that once it all clicks into place, the whole movie kind of starts like unraveling itself for you uh, in a way that I that I really appreciate. Right, all of the like weird and incong- incongruous pieces or yeah. moments that feel like the like event rooms. All of the event rooms suddenly stop feeling like event rooms and start feeling like a brilliantly designed machine. Um, and I think that is like goes to what you said, Rob. That scene is what makes this movie. That scene is what is the connective tissue that really underscores all of the relationships from then forward. Once you realize Ash is management, it all clicks. <laughs> well, and this and so yeah, again, like so we talked about how they don't necessarily figure out exactly what does all the shit on the ship do. But they actually did have a pretty detailed answer about like why is Ash there? And it's not just to guarantee that, like, you know, okay, they don't unionize or something uh, while they're out there. It is just that the nature of this entire business is that you have no choice but to entrust small groups of workers mm-hmm. with, like, equipment and then equipment that we use to harvest billions of dollars worth of material. Uh, and it's worth, so, like, you know, they're basically carrying, uh, you know, hulls filled with gold doubloons, effectively. So how do you make sure that the inherent threat that comes with being as efficient as possible, having the smallest crew possible, running the skeleton crew. How do you prevent the fact that like you've also given a small group of underpaid people access to uh, a lifetime's worth of like riches? And that's why the androids are there. And that's fundamentally why they don't know that androids exist, because this is a closely held corporate secret that across these ships uh, that do this kind of work, there is someone there to make sure that if anyone even thinks about, uh, you know, trying to maybe rip off the cargo or let's take it to a different port and just sell it and disappear, uh, you have someone representing management's interests who can prevent that. Do we think that's a that's a rule or because the, the, the sense I kind of got from it was that because they mentioned they had been working with a different science officer for a long time. And then this person was put on at the last minute kind of as a surprise and my thought, given what the uh, ultimate orders are, right, get the organism back and the crew can be yeah. expendable, feels like that that's the specific reason they had an android, is is because of that. And not necessarily that this is a thing that Wayland does on all of its ships, necessarily. Um, no, I, I agree. But I, I do like that they had this thought about, like, why don't... Why? This was kind of their answer of, why don't they know the androids are there in the first place? The, there's a right, possibility right. there's an android there. And it's because here is why nobody wants you to know about the androids that are secretly mm-hmm. being slipped onto these crews. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but I but I am with you that like that's kind of the first sign of well we never worked with Ash before yeah um, and Ash he seems like the weak link at first where it's just like oh he's he's too he's kind of a screw up and he like mishandles these key these key moments uh, and and is the one who's like let's let him aboard the ship because we got to do medical stuff uh, and it's really only like the second the, the second time like once you know. The way Ian Holm watches all this unfold throughout the movie is so unsettling and so yeah. obviously like like someone watching um like a bug twitching on a pin in <laughs> you know in one of those boards. Like that is right. that is how Ash looks at looks at the crew in yeah. all these moments. Uh it's it's so well done. And the the idea that O'Bannon's there like lesser minds thought of this, and it's like yeah, lesser mind, sure, thematically enriched this film and gave it a resonance that would go far beyond, like, what if an alien got aboard a ship and killed everybody? Now, wouldn't it be fucked up if there was kind of a big guy with a weird mouth? Dan Bannon? <laughs> you, you, you I, I, wonder how, I wonder how much of that is sketched out in... This the script did that come up at all in the comic? Like how much of the like actual... when does it become the shooting script that, that Ash is there? Right. Yeah. Well, no, 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 no. I, I it was separate, separate from Ash. Like, uh, like, like, it, it just given the fact that it it is possible for the Ash character to have been so different, um, when they're shooting relative to when O'Bannon turns in, you know, his draft. Uh, I'm curious, like, how the alien is described. Like, what, like, how much of Again, like to, to Ren's joke of like, what if it's just an alien running around a ship, right? Like so much of like what we keep talking about here seems to be reducing O'Bannon's script over time with the knowledge we have of what the production of this film. It just makes me curious, like how is the alien, like how much of that is derived from specifically Geiger conceiving of a design? Because it's so much, it's so hard yeah. to extract the design of that creature from what makes it work because... I, I I don't know how much of that was on the page, right? Like, and how much of that is Geiger being like, of course it's got, we got pieces of vaginas everywhere. Like, I'm going to construct something out of that. Um, he does a wonderful job of it, but I, I it's hard. There's no sexual energy in the, in the film and uh, in the, in the script. And so, you know, that all comes from Geiger stuff. Um, I feel like early, I do, I like, I wasn't fully tuned into this part, but they talk about, there is a different conception of what the monster would look like. And right. then, it Which, got, got of course, yeah. but like, yeah. but it was a really mundane conception of what the, like, that's how it sounded is yeah. that it just wasn't like, it, it was a really unmemorable type of monster. Um, mm-hmm. And that it like that it was, it was Geiger sort of comes up with this whole thing uh, is going to be, but I do think what a lot of that happens in on production, right? I was watching a documentary on RoboCop and it's yeah. like so much of like, they didn't know what RoboCop looks like until they, they were like, you know, Verhoeven decides he's going to shoot this film and they got to figure out, oh, no, what does RoboCop look like? And you you go, how could you imagine the film RoboCop without knowing how that how that's all going to play out? But like so much happens in that, that you know, once pro- artists are brought in to actually produce the things that are just described or alluded to on the page. I also think that like. Nowhere in dialogue does the violence in Alien feel gendered but everywhere in the actual like what you see on screen mm-hmm. every act of violence in this movie is so deeply gendered that i have i have to imagine that a lot of it comes from geiger and from uh like actors responding to what geiger is doing 
Uh, because if Bannon, if Bannon can't stand the fact that this movie uh, has thought that this that the movie he worked on ends up having thoughts about how corporations enact power on people, I bet he is similarly frustrated with the ways in which this film has a lot of thoughts about how corporations enact power on people and how that is reflected through gendered violence. Yeah, it's like it's tough to it's tough to say because like he mostly. He contributes a lot of thoughts about like what he doesn't want the picture to be and some irritations about like stuff that was forced in there. But like, uh, yeah, it, like a lot of this is discovered, I think, on the set as they think through how this is all going to look and and work. Um, the the one like thing that he, he did sort of contribute, it seems, is he was really committed to this idea of here's what they can't do. Shoot the alien and the bullets bounce off. He was like, yeah. we're not doing we're not making a movie where it's just an invulnerable monster. Yeah. They it, they're like, this is why the thing like shoots acid uh, when like bleeds acid when it's uh, like skin is ruptured. Uh, it's, it's this idea that squishing this thing will cause more problems than it solves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's like that's his big note. I do think like there's some like like a lot of times like. Sometimes it's really valuable as a concept. And then mm-hmm. you get a good creative team to riff on it. You know, I was talking about mm-hmm. um, Collateral the other night with, um, you know, Austin and uh, Alex and, and Dia. And like we started, we're joking about that Michael Mann notoriously, he's like, this is a cool script. A shame about all the shitty words and dialogue in it, but I like some of the <laughs> ideas here. Uh, we're going to buy the script. And then the screenwriter, um, will be allowed a shitty table at the uh like premiere uh dinner like that's what like he is very much like thanks for your script uh i'm gonna go fix it now with my team i never want to hear speak to you again and to a degree like there's like especially in a form as collaborative as filmmaking uh there is something to be said for that where it's like here's a cool concept and there's nothing that you're going to write down on the page that will be cooler than like what this group of actors and set designers and artists are going to come up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of what actors and set designers come up with, I think we should take a quick dip into the question bucket. Yeah. Uh, and one of the questions that we got uh, was, hi there, Waypoint. Alien is so foundational to modern sci-fi visuals and lore that I literally can't imagine the genre without it. I'm curious as to what each of your favorite contributions in terms of a trope or idea that originated or was popularized through this film. As always, fuck capitalism, blow it out of goddamn airlock, and go home. Is there anything that this film does that you really think... It's carries forward and that so you tough to answer because everything that's the that's the problem yeah. is like right it casts such a long shadow that i'm like even on scott right like in, in, in we talked about this from prometheus mm-hmm. there is a running line through how scott views like this movie going forward as kind of an albatross like like f- f- fucking alien movie i mean obviously probably proud of it like it's an excellent pe- but like it's 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 a movie that yeah casts such an enormous like I don't think you can pull singular elements out and be like, oh look at look at what it did. It was like the whole movie influences a generation of filmmakers. I think one thing I, I point out to point out here, and I maybe some this is similar to some stuff that goes on with like movies like Halloween as well. Um 
you see a lot of later movies go to a lot of trouble through casting and like uh like establishing character with like little story beats trying to create as vivid and memorable a set of characters as you have here and and they they miss they don't they don't get there in a lot of cases but but I do think a a, a huge part of this movie uh is in this in this sense of creating uh sort of the vividly imagined ensemble uh as opposed to there being a couple leads um and then a group of supporting uh i think i think there's a lot of movies that sort of try to get at some of the establishing beats that are done uh in alien and they don't they don't quite get there i'm not saying like you know ah, scott like invented the idea of the the ensemble cast but i do think there's a lot of films that are trying to get at the strong impression that this cast makes on us and what and how that makes like all their deaths so memorable um and like i think that's that's one thing that gets carried forward just kind of imperfectly i think you know when you see prometheus the big problem is you don't have a harry dean stanton equivalent in that cast it's all stars all the way down it's it's all like uh big name actors in smaller parts and it gives it kind of a it's kind of a weird vibe, honestly, uh, in, in terms of you don't have you don't have people who are as immediately convincing as like Cato and Stanton are uh, as like two grunts aboard the spaceship like Idris, Idris Elba is a cool spaceship captain, but he's still Idris Elba. Uh, <laughs> and and I, and I think that's that's something you you run into a lot with movies from this era versus later where like everything has to be a casting opportunity to like mm. be part of the, the movie's marketing. Well, and, and, then, and then also those characters get plot shields, right? Yeah. Like in, in which like the higher, more high profile the actor, the more you can assume they still might bite it, but it's going to happen later in this in the story. And it can shine especially about first. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, you can do that, but that's there's a reason they call it like stuff like that stunt casting, right? Because your expectation is that person's going to be around. Um, and uh, which what's nice about Alien, um, you know, obviously you look back on this film and it's like, holy shit, this is just full of like incredibly wonderful character actors, and Sigourney Weaver being like the standout who becomes you know a really notable uh, actor, uh, but uh. Yeah, the, the movie is, is is to its advantage because everyone just sort of blends in to the background as opposed to being foregrounded. Yeah, I think that's the strength of like. Oh, sorry, Kato, please. I was just going to comment really quickly. Like, I feel like it's easily an hour before you realize that Ripley's the main character. Yeah, right. For sure. Like, at it's least. really once Dallas dies, you now yeah, you know, and then you're like, now okay, you're like, okay, <laughs> Ripley's the main character of the rest. Because well, there of isn't film. a main character, yeah, right? Absolutely. Like, like they're like the, the, essentially the film then has to decide, like, uh, 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 and then Ripley like grabs the camera and goes, "It's me, bitch." <laughs> it, it ain't gonna be Lambert. Like, yeah, no. Lambert, no, che- no, Lambert no. checks out. <laughs> too too busy peeing her pants. And Kato <laughs> and, and Kato um Parker. Uh, <laughs> Once, say you got to start telling you got to start saying the character saying, name yeah, of the because actor. It sounds, like, I'm, yeah. I'm losing my mind over here. Uh, but but Parker <sighs> just wants like he doesn't want to come up with a plan. He wants to fuck up this alien. Tell me how we're gonna we're gonna get this thing off our ship. But like 
I like that's what I'm that's what I'm signed up for. So yeah, that's she sort of emerges as the hero out of necessity uh, in this moment. Uh, but even you know even there, this your point on the commentary. Uh, Lambert's Lambert's right in terms of it's time to get yeah. off the ship and head for the lifeboat. The reason they don't is that Ripley thinks they've got four people and that's too many for the lifeboat. Yeah, she won't they leave because have. Ash yep. is still there. Yep. Again. It's it is a movie where people are constantly making the correct decisions if everyone is acting in good faith, uh, and they're not. The motherfucker doesn't I, need I to breathe. <laughs> the other thing is that, like, I think that about the the cast, the, the ensemble cast you're talking about, Rob, is that like this is kind of the through line between a lot of the movies we've been watching for podcasts recently, right? This is true of Alien. This is true of The Thing. This is true of Predator. Are all of them have this really recognizable ensemble cast that doesn't really that doesn't narrow down to its actual protagonist until the latter half of the film. And I think the other thing is like all of these movies are about or have a lot of focus on gender in some really interesting ways. Uh, and I think that that is a that is an interesting similarity between all of them that like this isn't to say that like ensemble films are better at talking about gender than other things but i think that like that these three movies share this very clear lineage with one another and build off of each other in interesting ways uh is is i think really neat i mean i'll 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 say to that point like i think it's one reason that we're gonna make so much the rest of the series about like because it's now about Ripley, it's got to be about motherhood. And like, mm-hmm. it is like, and I like aliens. Um, but like the fact that it gets reduced to that now, uh, where it's going to be, she's the badass hero whose job is to be like, I'm trying to warn you. I've seen this all before. That's, that's like half of what she's going to do, uh, for the rest of her existence as a character is try to like, get out ahead of people being like, I'm going to fuck with this alien now. Uh, and her being like, shouldn't do that. And then the other part of it is, um you know oh but i've lost my child and i have this feeling of absence uh because i'm not being like i'm no longer able to be a mother and actually the only thing that stands in for my child is the alien and it's like man that sucks <laughs> yeah. From, yeah. and it's 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 like alien doesn't do that to any of its characters because it is because it is just so much about like again workplace drama uh, turned into a a horror movie, and then yeah, the minute it 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 tightens focus, it ends up becoming about what it thinks are like more universal and profound themes, but are actually kind of shallower and less interesting. In we well, have to give an, give her an arc, and what's fascinating about Alien is the characters don't really have arcs. I mean, there's no character development. Things happen. Characters' motivations are revealed, but that's what happens with Ripley over the course of the series. Is well, she can't just keep blowing up the aliens there's got to be a motivation attached to it uh that's emotional oh. and grounded and real so i didn't get to this part in the commentary uh but i am looking at an article that talks about what's in the commentary and patrick it mm-hmm. is in this commentary that they talk about there were intentions to shoot a sex scene with ripley and the Zen- xenomorph that was the oh, idea no. uh that it would be so it would investigate what her and be fascinated God. by uh you know her body etc et and i think that's where that thing you were talking about comes from because like there is no later in the series there I, like there is no thing that sort of stands in for that kind of like scene uh between ripley and, and the xenomorph um but i think this is where this notion comes from that well and it's also there's a long-standing fan theory that uh 
uh, Lambert when you see the the creature like tickle its tail up. It's not you know you don't see how yeah. she dies, but there's been a long running fan theory that there is sexual violence associated with the alien um, uh, and and what it does to uh, its victims. Which I actually believe I was reading this on a wiki earlier, so don't shoot me if I was wrong uh, or incorrect. But that in one of the Alien Isolation DLCs there is an instance in which you find Lambert's body and there is like blood near her crotch area as like they essentially, it's just, it's just them fan theorizing, but like they essentially are trying to canonize that as something that occurred in that scene. Oh, that's a horrible misreading of like this entire, I'm sorry, this entire series about Ridley Scott's deep seated fear of uh, having a tentacle have sex with your face. Um, (laughs) And that's, that's what the alien does. Yeah. Um, I also think that like to this point, Rob, I think that the reason that alien lands so well is because uh, about gender, right. And about uh, these relationships is that it understands, or it seems to understand uh, in a way that uh, the later films don't, that gender is fundamentally relational and communal, right? It isn't that motherhood is this broad universal idea. It is that these relationships emerge in community with other concrete people who you're in front of um and that's also you know the strength of the thing uh and predator is that like these are gender isn't just an an idea it is a thing that emerges from relationships you have with specific people and has specific rules that you follow but are not like universal truths to who you are they are social roles which you are happening to embody at a particular moment in time and it leads to these movies resonating forward in a way that I think works really well. The ways in which masculinity functions in Predator still feels resonant to a lot of ways that men interact in friendships with one another in ways that, um, you know, movies that are more explicitly in trying to make broad assertions about gender can't do because it's so rooted in a particular time and social context. Alrighty, moving on to our next question. Hey, small side that I love about the movie is that it is heavily implied that like alien life is well encountered, not a new concept. And so when they see like the what you know what we later call the engineer, and it's like a guy in front of a big te- what was theorized at the time to be like a big telescope, and then later is turned out to be a, a spaceship. Is just they just it's all just taken it like well. There's another alien, you know, just another life form. Yeah. Like, I just love that little tiny detail that that is just taken for granted. That's why the quarantine procedures exist. It's like you might find shit. You should probably, probably shouldn't fucking touch it, let, let alone have it go on your mouth. Um, it's just a neat thing that stood out to me upon. But it is still special enough that Kane is like, yes, organic life. Right. Like, it's still a rare encounter. And spe- right. like, I imagine it's very special to be like in on the like you're the discoverer of the thing um but yeah it also applies that like it's never sapient or sentient uh is the other thing i i like about the uh the way this movie applies yeah. implies this because it's not like people are like there is no scene that suggests that in a different corner of aliens universe you are just chilling talking to an alien being like right. no. oh yeah it's never star it is never star wars it is always the thing you are interacting with 
you will never understand the thing that you are that you are going to interact with out there. It will be a disease that inter- that interacts with your bodies in, in in your with your body in a way that is unlike quite literally anything else. There is no creature like a face hugger that does violence to people like a face hugger does. Um, like that rules. Fucking g- good ass movie. Y'all heard of these? <laughs> Excellent. <clears throat> Hey y'all, long time first time. The Alien movies established this unique brand of retrofuturism, which probably wasn't what it was called then, that has been a go-to aesthetic for a lot of projects. I constantly catch myself watching what 20, wondering what 20 years from now will be viewed in the same light as the CRT punk aesthetic. What do sci-fi films in the future seek to emulate from our current tech sphere, or more accurately, what assumptions have we made about what future tech will look like that will be labeled as retrofuturism later? Love all you do. Fuck capitalism. Fuck Wayland Utani. Stay off LV426, Caleb. (laughs) (laughs) I think a lot of places go to, like, because HD is becoming so like you can't your eyes can't tell the difference between the pixels and things like that. Um, it's like, well, how do we make this look shinier? You can see through it now. It's a, it's a, it's yeah. projected on glass or something, right? This phone is just kind of a solid uh, a solid pane of glass. Isn't that fucking wacky? Yeah, isn't that wild? Uh, and it's just like. Yeah, I guess that was the, like like because the because of the technology that existed at the time when the movie was coming out is so like specific like right like CRT technology and like the way that that looks can only look a certain way like and they didn't have CG to like fake things with right like this was before they had real computer graphics to be like well now now imagine something even wilder and let's do that it's like it had to be it's. It's not really retrofuturism. It's just like this is what they were working with, right? Like right. They, they were limited by that, and like it ends up looking really good because it stems from material things that exist. In, instead of being like, imagine the wildest thing, a screen that's also glass that you can see through, <laughs> um, and, and we'll make it on a computer, right? Um, you know, practical effects coming through again to making things feel more grounded and real. Uh, <laughs> when, she, when she's like trying to shove like the fucking levers on the on the yeah, but like when she's trying stuff. to push it faster when the the uh, the, the destruction sequence is happening, like uh, yeah, just yeah. like trying to shove that like thing that piece of metal back in there two seconds faster. Incredible. Yeah, I mean, like I also think that even even the like projected screen or like little pane of glass that that is a that is a computer is like is a product of technology that we currently have available. It's really easy to just put, or it's not really easy. It is significantly easier to just make that shit a hologram. It doesn't right. have to look good if you project it into the air or whatever the fuck. It can look fake because we are imagining a world in which everything looks. We are imagining a world in which everything looks like it's out of a fucking Marvel movie. Uh, is what I think that uh, that we're pushing towards um, right now, and that I hope, I hope deeply, uh, is incorrect. Uh, because that shit is corny as hell. <laughs> I think some of it also stems from the fact that, like, Alien is so in touch with um, industrial design mm-hmm. uh, of the period. Things that you find, like, heavy-duty equipment 
and mm-hmm. such. And I think one thing that uh, informs a lot of like futurist design right now is everything's like the reason we keep talking about uh, like the way smart smartphones look that that aesthetic yeah. is because it is all examined through the lens of consumer technology. Uh, and I think if you're going to think about like what things are going to look like in the future, I think like, I think you would see different visions of this. If more people were familiar with like what a semiconductor factory looks like, or what a, uh, like what large scale additive manufacturing will look like. Uh, in terms of like how things are built, how things are made, what does what does the machinery and equipment that'll be like seen on an industrial scale look mm-hmm. like? Right now, there's a very, very high emphasis on the weightlessness of interface um, that that has sort of dominated the idea of like what the future will look like uh, ever since like the iPhone came out. Uh, but I, I do think like one of the things that may end up being defining uh, like futurist aesthetics uh you know in in decades to come might be more stuff that is looking at um yeah looking looking at what it what is required to large-scale manufacture precision tools uh or or what these interfaces can be used to control and what they can be used to sort of instantiate in the physical world what was just in in the data uh Mm -hmm. before we're just not there like that just doesn't get brought out uh, very much well, also, I think it's part of the, the angles that you're correctly addressing with like, cons- this is a, a lot of current future aesthetics are focused on con- consumer electronics is also because like, that's what the audience interacts with. Yeah. Right. And and I think that is, you know, again, part of the uh, grounding of this film in the time in which it is made is that you have a audience base that is, if you're assuming you're talking about an American audience here, that is more frequently interacting with the industrial production spaces that currently exist, right? A, a larger percentage of your audience is going to know what the inside of a factory looks like right now. If you ask someone in, you know, 1980, hey, can you tell me what a steel mill looks like on the inside? Uh, I think that you get something similar to, or like, what does a nuclear power plant look like yeah. on the inside? You get something similar to what the Nostromo looks like. And I think if you walk up to someone on a street right now and say, hey, what does the interior of a particular um, factory or like plant look like? That person is either going to have no idea or it is going to be all uh, assembly lines and conveyor belt. Like it is all, uh, you know, distanced assembly production systems as opposed to things that you can imagine a person existing in. I think that maybe the the industrial design we get is where the Nostromo feels like a machine that people should not be in but have to be. I feel like um, the future, like the retro future design you're talking about, Rob, is like machines that feel like they were never supposed to have people in them at all. The machines that assume that there should never be a human element. Yep. Um. Alrighty, I have one final question. We've been talking a lot about Ripley uh, and and Sigourney Weaver throughout, and like her relationship to the film. She's on the commentary track. She has a lot of influence on, you know, the character itself. Who else in film history can be Ripley? Is it only Sigourney Weaver? Is it such a singular role that without her, the movie falls apart? Because apparently, there was a rumor that Meryl Streep 
was uh, in consideration for the role uh, that only uh, fell through because she dropped out during casting. Hmm. I think it's more. I I I I don't, I don't view necessarily the role as only could have been her as much as she was extraordinary in it. Like, there's so much that's incredible about this film that. Maybe it's a better film because of Sigourney Weaver. I'm not trying to d- diminish any of her mm-hmm. of her talents as an actor, but uh, she's additive to something that is already extraordinary. Um, that said, like you know, like many things, when you imagine a classic work and read about the what ifs on the casting, like it's incredibly hard to imagine Meryl Streep. But you know what? Would pay to see that cut. Would pay to see what Meryl Streep was doing in this film. Tell you that much. Meryl Streep getting decked in the middle of the scene, just like I'm sure she would have. I'm sure she would have stood for yeah, that. Shooting like, yeah. Yes. No, and she's like, not this shit again. I thought I'd, I'd seen the last of this. Yeah. Jesus. Oh my god. No, but like, yeah, I'm not going to bet against Meryl Streep doing doing a role like this. I think she she'd be terrific uh, in it. But I I do think um, like Sigourney Weaver is perfect for roles like this. Uh, and I, I think one of the things that I, I think is tough to get at is she plays characters. What's the way to put it? Um, she plays characters as if it's not so important whether or not you like them, you will like them, but it, they don't, they do not seem like they're like, they're trying to elicit sympathy. They just, they just, there's are. no charm offensive from a lot yeah. of her characters. And, like, yeah, and so I think even, that's, even even more comedic films like Ghostbusters, like I don't feel like she is even exuding. She's turning it on a little bit, but not merely to the degree that you could. Right to a degree, like she knows her role as the straight man uh, in in a lot of that in a lot of that movie and and, and plays it. But uh, yeah, there's like a prickliness to a lot of what she does, and I think that I think that serves the role well because she is a little bit distant from the crew and distant from us. Uh, for a long time and until kind of we're only left with her and you know she and jonesy are the ones where we're hoping get off the <laughs> ship now because because everything else has, has has gone to hell uh but but i think that's kind of the the thing that she she adds is kind of a willingness uh to be not unlikable but not an immediately legible sympathetic uh character uh in that in that way um so I, I, like I, I can imagine a lot of a, a lot of actors playing the role. It all ends up being different. I, so as I was watching this, I was, I was sort of thinking like, if you could get like someone like Catherine Hepburn to tamp it the fuck down, you could like you know during you know, like, during peak Catherine Hepburn, could she play a character like this? Yes, but you're never gonna get her to tamp it down because she always like comes from stage tradition wants to play up and i think so much of the fact that they were fighting to get ripley uh to to get weaver to play up in a scene i think is crucial to why the movie works so well is because she is so stingy with that level of like heightened emotion uh that she is both like kind of the rock that holds these movies together uh, but also when the cracks form, it is so much more impactful because we know how much it must take for this character to have these like breaches open up, mm-hmm. which is kind of wild because Sigourney Weaver before this film did Broadway, apparently like that is where she came from originally. So it's like mm. even more like a, 
a kind of mark of like she knows how to control those things like really really well <laughs> it's, I mean, wild. it's yeah. a character who sorry not a character a person who very clearly understands how to play in the specific situation to the specific medium that she's working in yeah. right there's a there's a like a running trend uh on various social media like there's a, there was a very long-term tiktok trend of people being like let's compare different styles of acting this is what film acting looks like. This is what let's let it do with these exact same scenes or the exact same lines through different <clears throat> styles of acting. This is what film acting looks like. This is what, you know, Broadway acting looks like. Uh, theater acting looks like non-Broadway theater acting looks like. And here's what like TikTok acting looks like or whatever the fuck, right? Totally different schools and understandings of how you convey emotion. Uh, and Sigourney Weaver has such an obvious mastery over what specific medium she's working in that I think, yeah, it, 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 really like elevates uh the characters and films that she's in it's interesting like Rob, when you like struggle with the word to describe like prickly un- unlikable like trying to avoid some of these like gendered terms that are often applied to like women characters in in, in film more generally but like met like especially in movies like this like men like we we have plenty of asshole men that go on to be the hero that we like root for and so it's it's singularly unique um, even now that this film allows for a character like that in which they're going to go on to be the person you're rooting for, like are, are actively with. You may not, I mean, you empathize with them, but it doesn't go over. It doesn't go over. You empathize with their awful situation. It doesn't necessarily spend a lot of time making you sympathize with like, like again, like the motherhood or a family that they miss behind. Like it's mostly just situational empathy. Um, and, that's I think that's part of the enduring quality of Alien is that that always conti- that strikes you as unique every time you revisit it mm-hmm. because it's just not something you see in film um, or in television all that often. I'll just uh, throw this out there too. Um, in terms of like, boy, like I'm surprised that she's not in more movies uh, for how long she's been active. She's very selective with roles and a lot of them, a lot of more aliens movies. Uh, but <laughs> like in 19, I haven't seen this movie in ages, but like 1988, uh, there's a movie working girl uh, where she's playing opposite Melanie Griffith. Um, and it is basically just from the premise. I can only assume the movie has been ages since I've seen it. It seems like a pretty misogynistic premise. Uh, I'm wondering if it's even more misogynistic in in actuality, but, but basically uh, like Melanie Griffith is sort of the young ingenue trying to like make it as a career woman in New York city. Uh, and she is quite smitten with the, the boss of the company, Harrison Ford. Um, but the thing that Weaver is there to play uh, plays a character, Catherine Parker uh, we're talking about the like the the gender like she is playing like what people say about women they find unlikable uh, in working girl. She is fully leaning into that, uh, but also it's kind of a uh, it's, it's a movie that's also playing into the uh, she positions herself as the mentor to Melanie Griffith. Uh, in that film and it only turns out much later that she is not an ally uh that she she is the woman who gets to climb the ranks melanie griffith sure shit does not get to climb the ranks behind her uh but there is like the film explicitly leans into the fact that like something about weaver and the way she play like the the way she plays makes it really easy to sign these this frame to her and working girl like fully leans into that 
uh, where like she is the she's the bad career woman that everybody's kind of afraid of uh, and is like too ambitious, kind of a snake. She's mean. And Melanie Griffith is her position as this is kind of what we want. A nice girl who just wants to like do good work uh, and is willing to be uh, a, a, a pliant sexual partner to the boss. And that's kind of what that movie is about. But but the, the thing that stands out is the degree to which Weaver is so charismatic as the villain of that movie for these for these exact reasons. The like, you know, not going to be Melanie Griffith, not going to be playing Meg Ryan parts, going to be kind of a force of nature in these movies. And you can take or leave that. Uh, does anyone else have any final thoughts? I just want to read the IMDb summary of Alien Resurrection, a movie I've seen once and have not seen since, despite owning in multiple formats, because they always release these films as a box set. 200 years after her death, <laughs> Ellen Ripley is revived as a powerful human-alien hybrid clone. Along with a crew of space pirates, she must, must, must again battle the deadly aliens and stop them from reaching Earth. Fuck off. Ah! <laughs> Winona Ryder? Yep. Ron Perlman? Yep. Michael Wincott? How is this not the best movie? <laughs> uh, look, I all, all Alien did uh, was get me to start watching like teaser trailers for the original uh, Aliens. Uh, like I love watching the original like theatrical trailers for films like that, especially after I'm watching like an original. All I wanted to do was just run through this entire series now. Wait, the, the Amelie guy did Alien Resurrection? Yes, dude. Like that's and it was written what by Joss Whedon. What the fuck did what? you just say to me? Written by Joss Whedon. Oh, what? He, yeah, dude. What? Yeah, this, Wait, this movie is all over the place creatively. Oh my god. Wow. Okay. Nah. Oh. oh. Man. oh yeah. Fuck. Oh no. Oh. Now, granted, that's a very appealing pitch, but yeah, I, mean, <laughs> I think it kind of is irresistible. I mean, after that, honestly, then you got to watch it. It's unfortunate. I can I can attest to that part. Is uh, it feels like the fourth film in a franchise that should stop? <laughs> frankly, well, after that grim portent of things to come, mm -hmm. uh, I think it's time to vend this episode out of the airlock and into Cotto's production suite. My turn and everything else we do here at Waypoint is only possible thanks to the support of our Waypoint Plus subscribers who are listening to this episode a week early. If you'd like to join them, you can do so at waypointplus.com. You can follow us on Twitch at twitch.tv slash waypoint, and you can find our writing at waypoint.zone. Rob, where can people find you? At Rob Zachney. Patrick? At Patrick Klumpik. Cotto? At A underscore Cotto underscore appears. You can find me on Twitter at Ren or Raven. Thanks for joining us today for my turn where next time it'll be your turn to choose what film we are subjecting ourselves to, which you can choose by participating in the poll included in this Friday's newsletter. But uh, we all haven't. So the way that's going to work is all of us are going to pick a movie and then you'll pick it from that pile. And that'll be the next one that we do. Um, I haven't decided what mine is. Has anyone else decided? Rob, I believe you said you've decided what yours is. What is yep. what is yours that you're throwing into the, into the uh, pile? Mine is the, God, I think it's 1996. Uh, Stanley Tucci directed film uh, starring Stanley Tucci, Tony Shalhoub, Allison Janney, Minnie Driver, and Ian Holm from Alien, uh, Big Night. Uh, a film so Ian about home is your connective tissue. That's, that's, yeah. that's our jump. <laughs> that's okay. amazing. Yeah. Love it. Love it. <laughs> that's um, amazing. And... 
so the, the 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 pitch for that is like it is about uh Stanley Tucci and uh Tony Shaloub are two uh uh like immigrant Italian brothers uh running a struggling Italian restaurant uh in I want to say like somewhere on Long Island is my memory is my memory of it but it's not like it's not like the city. Uh but crucially it is also maybe the best Italian restaurant, uh, in, like in in the city, or, or or maybe maybe the country at this point. It's a film that's very much centered on, uh, like how do we measure success? Uh, what type of success does America encourage you to pursue versus uh, what type of success will actually like uh, fulfill you? And so it's a, like I think that's the other bit of connective tissue is it is a movie also concerned uh, from a, from a different angle with sort of the relationship uh, that like capitalism has us form with our work and and more pointedly in this also our craft. I just, I, I'm so excited for the premise of this show because each one of us is going to bring <laughs> something to this yes. and I and I, regardless of I think what the audience ends up going with I think that going to the next uh sequence into the next um in the next series of movies that we're going to end up doing is going to feel like being vented out of an airlock. <laughs> yeah, I don't so I I will say I've you taken know, the criticism Oh, go ahead. I just I was like, why does Ash look familiar? I feel like I know who this is, but I don't. Oh, no. Lord no, of the Rings. Lord of the drop. Bilbo! Fucking, no, the fifth element? He's the fucking, <laughs> what? Ian Holm is everywhere. He's a wonderful, wonderful character actor. He's I could him. not. I could not connect it. I was like, I know, is it just because I've seen Alien before? That must be it. But I was having such a time. He does. Just like. Once you hear, also, once you hear it. Mm. You can hear that he's the voice of of Chef Skinner in Ratatouille, but you would never oh put the God. two together. But once you hear it, you can be like, "Yes, I do recognize oh, like that up. is his voice underneath <laughs> that persona." But like, oh, well, uh, my contribution to is going to be Ratatouille. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just wanted to point out that we, at the conclusion of a previous episode, we sort of talked about well, maybe it'll be like multiple timelines and. I got uh, no, like notable. Do not want that. Correct criticism that the, the, the whole the again the original idea was that this it's a timeline. I'm not going to reveal where we're going. The, well, the details of that will come at the end of the next episode. But I will. Your criticism has been heard. It'll be a singular timeline. I I know where we're going next, and part well, of the where fun we're trying will be, to get. Where we're, we're trying, trying to, get. to drag, well, and we're going to have to we're going to have to get there. Ian Holm was in Brazil. There you go. Look, <laughs> lots of options, um, and we will we'll reveal where we're where where we're pointing the sh- the, 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 the 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 waypoint Nostromo uh, next. But it'll stay. We will have to do our own quantum jumping through cinema uh, to get there, and that'll be the fun uh, of how we do that between uh, now and then. So the U.S. CSS Carver will get to its destination. Is this <laughs> because the speakers? Yes, the Carver beautiful, <laughs> beautiful. <laughs> Oh, amazing! I, I was I was racking my brain earlier. I was like, "What would the what would the waypoint ship be named?" And I was like, "Well, it would probably this would probably happen to us. <laughs> this would probably be inflicted upon every other crew member uh, that the ship would be called the USCSS Carver." That would probably everyone, would probably everyone is be. awakened from their uh, like cryo sleep. 
because I'm like, we got to go to the swap swap meet. Like, I have, I've got <laughs> a line on some good audio equipment, crew expendable. I thought you were going to say because of the Carver uh, speakers that are in every room suddenly blasting like Rush yeah. <laughs> to wake everyone up. <laughs> Jesus. Uh, well, one day we'll, we'll, we'll see the next movie. Hey, is the fact that they're cut, shutting down Google surveys going to fuck us on doing this? Sorry, they're doing what? They're shutting down Google surveys. There's other poll services than Google. Yeah, yeah we, got, we can do a doodle. Yeah, there's right? fucking a doodle. Yeah. We'll right. Straw poll, whatever. There are better poll services. Hell yeah. <laughs> All right, I'm going to stop recording. <laughs> hey, I don't stop. know where that ended. I'm hitting I'm gonna stop figure now, out where it ended. You get, yeah, that's up. That's up to the producer. <laughs> Great. Listen, I I thought I had an outro. I was I was, I was like, I'm gonna talking. give Kato a yep. gift. I'm gonna give <laughs> Kato an easy out, and then everyone went fuck them. <laughs> fuck them. That's yes, yes. That's the experience. Oh God.